Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss Brexit and the possibility of a general election, if the US political impeachment process and trade war could trigger a recession, and whether there's a significant difference between the English-speaking economies and the rest of the world, with Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello and welcome to this week's Word on the Street, when I'm joined once again by our globetrotting Chief Investment Officer, Will Hobbs. Will, you're not in the studio with me today. Whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in Scotland on holiday, Toby, just on the West Coast. Thank you. Well, I will try and keep it brief and then you can get back to some warm rain. Um, you and the team... <laughs> it's not warm rain up here, it's cold rain. <laughs> I, I, but I'm sure it's beautiful, lest I offend any of our listeners in Scotland, and I it know that there are yeah. many. No, it is lovely, yeah. Carry on. You, yeah. And the team, you and the team last week in, um, in the blog, you, <laughs> you, you compared the UK's attempts to leave the European Union to the second series of, uh, of, of Jack Bauer's... Um, or the, the the TV show Twenty Four, starring Kiefer Sutherland as Jack Bauer. Um, I'm not going to do it justice if I try and summarise it, but perhaps you'd like to share with our listeners what you were getting at and how on earth you managed to draw a, a comparison with Twenty Four. Well, Toby, I'm I'm thinking here of the um, the increasingly demented plot twists uh, in Twenty Four, rather than the improvised torture sessions. Uh, that Jack carries out with kind of various, uh, you know, household uh, devices on a, uh, pretty much every episode. And, and particularly the series two, I don't know if anyone's seen it, who's listener, uh, series two, when the ever gormless Kim Bauer, Jack's daughter, uh, having escaped and evaded sort of five to six individual consecutive kidnap attempts. Yeah, she's, uh, then, she's kidnapped half a dozen times, isn't she, in that? Oh, series? easily, easily. And she's then, she escapes one kidnapper and she's pounced on by a cougar. Uh, now, in this situation, I think we can think of the withdrawal agreement as Kim Bauer, uh, and the cougar is being played by the Oliver Letwin Amendment. Uh, And essentially what's happened in the Brexit land is that the withdrawal agreement finally uh, made it through Parliament in in principle, so it's not sort of, you know, a proper agreement. It wasn't a meaningful vote. But in the subsequent vote, Parliament voted themselves more time to scrutinise the deal. So we were nearly there. And then we were not. So what, um, as far as the scenarios are concerned, where can we go from here? Because pretty much everything we talked about last week has now been and gone. And it just goes to prove that no matter how much you try and predict, I mean, pretty much nobody saw what was I don't think I read anyone seeing, you know, predicting the, maybe I'm reading the wrong stuff, but I didn't see many predicting the Oliver Letwin Amendment. But anyway, it's happened. And again, for the umpteenth time, let me say, we're we're reminded, uh, we're taught humility by the Brexit process. But I think right now, most people seem to be arguing that it's time for a general election. Um, Obviously not according to the Fixed Term Parliament Act, of course, but we are in a period where the electorate is being asked to intervene a lot more than normal. We obviously don't want to get into trying to call elections. As we pointed out before, these are not areas where we see ourselves or anyone else, actually, uh, having uh, much of an edge. The polls do tell us that the Tories, the Conservatives should win. uh, But translating that into seats in the House uh, or even a sort of confident prediction is obviously um, 
problematic. I think the thing for us, though, um, and I think this is something that we can do, is take a step back and see that the chances of the UK exiting the EU without a deal have dropped sharply uh, in the last few weeks. Now, you know, that avenue's not gone altogether, of course, um, but it looks a lot smaller than it was um, or even appeared um, in late uh, in late summer. Uh, and Sterling's rise um, does uh, does reflect that story, I think. No, and, and that is, of course, very helpful. Um, is there any truth in the uh, in the rumour that's been flying around the office that the reason that you used the Jack Bauer 24 metaphor was because I bully you so mercilessly about your uh, your obsession with 18th and 19th century history? <laughs> I don't know if Jack Bauer you don't, <laughs> you, <laughs> you don't have to answer. What you have done is proven, is proven that you have more diverse interests than I've ever given you credit for. Now, moving on, it's been a slightly quieter week in non-Brexit news, um, yeah. although there was some pretty explosive testimony from the senior US diplomat uh, in the impeachment investigations. That was William Taylor. There are a couple of spots of data here or there, but I guess the question to you, Will, is whether anything out there has materially shifted our views or or made us alter our position at all. Um, well, I mean, it's been an interesting week. I mean, I think um, probably at the margin, impeachment is looking a bit more likely. This, remember, is the... Um, this is down to the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. It's in their, in, their, in their purview. So, you know, that is more likely. But the actual removal from office of the president, which, remember, requires a kind of Republican-controlled Senate say, say so. Uh, so that's kind of like, uh, you know, they have a trial where the Senate or the jury and, uh, uh, and the Supreme Justice sits over it. Um, that looks like much more of a stretch, a stretch still. But, but we're not done with the, you know, the witnesses and the evidence gathering by the looks of things. And it's being done in real time. So, you know, keep an eye on opinion polls there. Data-wise, not too much new. Uh, we've had the kind of earliest uh, coal mine canaries of the month, which are the purchasing manager indices in Europe so far. Uh, and the answer is that there's not much different from last month. There's no real change so far. Um, you know, it's still subdued. The cyclical pulse remains weak, but it hasn't gone any weaker. And I think from our perspective, we'd still say um, that a material further deterioration uh, in the global economy looks like unlikely. Um, we still think that, you know, there's really three things to keep in mind. One, the trade war pause is probably going to help uh, the corporate sector uh, find its feet in again a little bit the same is also true number point number two which is you know globally lower interest rates which are also sort of stimulative uh you know helping to uh, uh to provide uh, you know again help the corporate sector find their feet a bit again but also the third point i think this is important is still we don't see the kind of imbalances that would require uh you know a major nasty recession uh you know the kind of economic punishment that usually uh, uh comes um comes with that so you know we'll we are keeping an eye on the data very closely, but we're not sort of, uh, we're, we still see the chances of an imminent recession, um, you know, in the next 12 months as, as well below 50-50. Now, Will, th- thanks for that. It's a useful summary. Would it be a good time to remind investors, as you have said to me many times before, that actually recessions are are the norm, not the exception. They are a normal part of any business cycle. But what happened back in 2007, that was anything but normal. So we shouldn't be thinking about recessions with that in mind, albeit it is a useful benchmark. But what we're looking at when you're looking at the data, when the team are analysing this, 
what I'm taking away from, from your weekly summary to me is that even though the data is less positive, even if we do step into a recession, it will be likely a normal recession and not one of those sort of economic aberrations like we experienced back in 2007. Would that be a fair summary? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, the, the whole thing of this is, I mean, I, I think... Um, the problem we have is a is a sort of soothsayer problem, isn't it? That people are always looking for someone who sees the future a bit clearer and so on. And what we can just say is that um, the last recession, like you rightly point out, was at the extreme end um, of the um, uh, of the spectrum. Um, that's not the norm, like you say. But um, but the other thing I think is that really investing is not about reliably avoiding recessions. If we could reliably avoid recessions, it wouldn't be just investors swerving out the way. It would be the whole business government community. There wouldn't be recessions if we could see them, if you think about it. So in the end, re- investing is more about accessing ingenuity. Do you know what I mean? Invention. So all of that stuff, you know, you're really just trying to focus on humankind's continuing ability to invent new stuff and get better at using that new stuff productivity and that is really the you know the main purpose of long-term investing you're just trying to get yourself available for that and the problem with that theory if you think about it is that i don't know when the next invention is going to come along there's nobody who's going to predict ahead of uh, ahead of time uh, what the big inventions are going to be otherwise they'd invent them themselves again so you know it, 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 it's it's just being in the game being on the pitch that's the key yeah, and I think you and the team have uh, you and the team have written a number of articles, which um, which people can go and look at either on the uh, the Barclays Wealth website or on the um, uh, on 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 the Smart Investor websites, where you make exactly that point and and the statistics around you know how much it costs if you miss one of those bounce backs and the the cost of trying to time the market versus just having broad exposure. Now earlier on, I mentioned the uh, the recession two thousand and seven. I was talking about the data points of two thousand and seven rather than uh, uh, the, the actual, the downturn in markets we saw was obviously 2008, but the foundations laid in 2007. Yeah, before, before I get attacked in the comments section. Now, um, one final thing to, to bring up with you, or certainly the, the, one of the latter things. Um, I wanted to dive into something in a bit more detail that you mentioned last week to me. You pointed out that the UK and many European economies belong to two totally different types of economy. But over the weekend, the question came to me in in an uncharacteristic bout of cerebral reflection, I might add, I I felt like you for a moment. I was thinking, wouldn't it be the case that in other currency unions, you could say the same thing? So whilst you're sort of making the case that different parts of Europe have very different economies, wouldn't that also be the case for, for, let's say, for example, Wyoming and California? Yeah, I mean, Toby, it's actually a well, it's an interesting um, point. Uh, you have a very tragic weekend if you're thinking about this, obviously. But <laughs> I always <laughs> think about you at the weekend. Ah, yeah, no, I know. No. Well, it's the podcast, clearly. But I think the first, the point you make about Wyoming uh, versus, you know, California, you know, very different states. You know, we don't want to deter us. You know, allow that alone to deter us from currency unions, because obviously, you know, the U.S. Um, does have a lot of very different states, all operating at different economic trajectories with different debt loads, all those kind of things. But I think the point here is that the differences go a bit deeper. Um, 
And this is really about, um, you know, the overall, it, it, it's almost totally different modes of organizing your systems of production and, uh, you know, configuration of your institutions and all those kind of things. Uh, and basically the UK and the US, uh, Canada, the English speaking world belongs to a different group. Uh, than to Germany and the Rhine, uh, the Rhineland, and those kind of areas. Now, so you're talking about things like when you talk about the system, you're talking about things like political and educational systems. Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest it goes down to that, and the way I would think about it almost is just business relationships. It's the way that business relationships are treated, and, and if you think about business relationships, this is everything between uh, including like the company to the employee, uh, between buyer and supplier. Now, in the Anglo-Saxon variant. Business relationships tend to be quite easy to both enter and exit. Um, you know, so such economies tend to be therefore quite good at quickly mobilizing or demobilizing resources to produce like radically new products, um, or if these products don't work, um, to fold up shop. Now, in the Rhineland version, uh, which incorporates the likes of Japan, such relationships tend to be significantly stickier. So here, economies tend to produce uh, and benefit from a more highly skilled workforce. Uh, which tends to be better equipped to make products that benefit from incremental improvement um, of the products themselves or indeed, you know, the production processes. So it, it, it is, um, it's very different uh, in the way that sort of, you know, it, it affects everything, you know, in the way that you educate your workforce uh, and even it goes to, you know, to, to, to how you vote essentially. So with that explained, not wanting to oversimplify, but I, I, when I think back to the way the market reacted in 2008, one thing that surprised me equally was the speed of recovery of, for example, the S&P 500. And I, I, I marveled at the speed with which corporations, really very large companies, were able to cut balance sheets, uh, exit workers. Now, obviously, you had huge unemployment as a consequence of that. But companies were able to restructure themselves really very, very quickly. What it sounds like you're saying is that that is not the default case around the world. Well, that's a really interesting point. And I guess, you know, one of the things about I mean, the great financial crisis is such a sort of different event. You know, if you think about it, one of the problems you have there is that, and the reason why profits decline so sharply, and remember, the decline in corporate profits in the U.S. is sharper than you see in 1929. Um, you know, so it's bigger than, worse than the Great Depression. And because what happens is you basically impair assets on the sectors with the largest balance sheets. So the financial services sectors and those with sort of, you know, financing arms, all that kind of thing. And you run this huge loss. And obviously, if anyone who knows their, their accounting will know that once you start getting, if you get a loss on the balance sheet, you then have to run it through the profit and loss account on a one-year basis. But what happens is that destroys profits on the first year, but then obviously you get a very easy comparison for your next year. So while profits decline 90% on the first year, i.e. 2007, 2008, they then bounce back 900% just arithmetically. Afterwards, so in, in a sense, the, the sort of the shape of the recovery, the immediate recovery, was driven almost arithmetically by that bounce back in profits, just because of the nature of the crisis. So I don't. It, there are some elements to, to sort of learn from the previous example and sort of transpose them onto this. And I think the U.S. corporate sector did get back on its feet very quickly, and they were much quicker to act than some parts of Europe. And that may have, you know, some something to do with. The way politics is run, I guess, also in the US and the UK. So over in the US and the UK, it's more majoritarian systems. So you get the ability to kind of act a bit quicker, I guess, sometimes could be the sort of benefit from that. Although you also get big swings in political direction as a result. But in the sort of more consensual sort of, uh, you know, European systems, what you tend to find is that no singular vision um, you know, is pushed into, into office without the agreement of others. 
So policy tends to stare a steadier, more predictable course as a result. And that provides a more comfortable backdrop for the kind of intergenerational bargains that the European countries require more because of the structure of their labor force, the nature of their education, the way they make products, all that kind of thing. So you can see there's linkages throughout all of it. So it's, it's fascinating when you get into it. I'm sorry, I've already bored on a little bit too much about it, but I've written an article about it if you are up for being more bored. Oh, well, I'm always happy to be bored by you. But no, it is a fascinating insight into, you know, how, how and I wasn't aware how, how different what ostensibly I would believe are similar, uh, similar nations could be uh, from, a, from, from an economic perspective. So it is a good article and I would commend it to anybody. Please have a look at the website, dig it out. Will, I'm conscious of the fact that this is your vacation I'm eating into. So I'm going to let you get back to uh, the, wind, the windswept beachlands of, uh, of Scotland. <laughs> and um, look, we'll keep an eye on the data. We'll keep an eye on Brexit and we'll make sure we're back in touch with, uh, with you and the team to uh, help our listeners understand what's been happening in uh, Word on the Street this time next week. Thank you. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.